This is the Future of Device Management Podcast, brought to you by Fleet. I'm your host, Zach Wasserman, CTO and co-founder of Fleet. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. All right, welcome, and we're here today with Prima Virani, Staff Engineer of Detection and Response at Twilio Segment. Prima, I'm really excited to be chatting with you today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm so looking forward to talking to you about all the cool tech things. Awesome. Thanks, Prima. And you and I know each other a little bit going back to uh, conferences like Mac DevOps YVR in 2019. And I know you've been involved with cybersecurity for a long time and the Mac scene and stuff. But for folks who don't know you, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your story, kind of what's your background? How did you end up here today? And what got you into cyber? Yeah, for sure. So some might be surprised to hear that I got into cybersecurity. I heard about it for the first time when I was all of 16. And I attended this random, you know, in India, we have these things called like career guidance seminars. They are basically people, they're like counselors, people that help you figure out what you might want to do next in your grade 11 and 12 so that you, what kind of universities do you want to get into and so on. And they had kind of mentioned something about something, something, cyber crime, something, something, cyber law and all that. And all of that sounded so cool right then when I'd heard about it. I went back and told my parents that, uh, hey, I just heard from this random person that there are careers in cybersecurity. And my parents thought that was such a great idea. <laughs> and uh, off we went, started looking for universities and places where I could get, you know, trained on that particular thing, right? And this was like late 2000s. So we started looking for universities and then somehow landed up in this university in Perth in Western Australia. That's where I studied cyber forensics and information security management. That was my major. Somehow managed to find myself a job that let me actually do that. That was also in Australia. And then um, a couple of years later, I, I think I just decided that I was bored of Perth and I was bored of being at Perth. So I started thinking about where I want to go next. I happened to travel to the Bay Area. Again, applied for a job here and applied for many jobs here. And then one of them decided to give me a chance. So I took that and just came. And then um, I've been here ever since. So that's my TLDR of how um, I landed up in cybersecurity. That's awesome. And actually, I mean, I think that's the best career counseling story I've ever heard. Like, wow, back in the late 2000s, there were career counselors who were aware of cybersecurity as a career and advised you to do that. And it was really convincing. That's so cool. Uh, like, what yeah. do you think was the most exciting thing to you, you know, back then looking at the industry as kind of a student and someone who wanted to get into it? Like, what really got you excited about getting into this industry? So back then, it wasn't actually the security part of it that got me excited. Uh, that came much later. Earlier, when I just started and just gotten to know about this field of work, I was super excited about the forensic side of things, actually, because, you know, it sounded like those crime resolution shows, you know, the type, the NCIS or whatever they call it. CSI uh, cybercrimes. 
Yeah, CSI, exactly. CSI cyber crimes. So earlier I thought it would be like that. And when I studied, the degree that I did was also actually forensics focused. So I thought, okay, this is going to be like that. Like we did a lot of database forensics. We did a lot of endpoint forensics. Our course was very hands-on. Our uh, course coordinator and the person who had like designed the degree, he was often working as a consultant and was, you know, a presenter in the court. Like he'd present all these digital forensics evidences and things like that. So our course was very hands-on. We did things like, you know, created a potential criminal's Windows machine in a virtual environment in like VMware. And then all of us were given an image to go through and perform forensics analysis on, create this like hypothesis of what we think might have happened and back it with all of the evidence and so on. And that was just one of our units. Then we did many units like that. We did database forensics as well. And of course, all of the, the first year, a lot of the basic computer science 101 type of units as well. So for the longest time, I thought I'd be working in forensics. But when I got into the industry, things were very different. And I had a very, very good mentor at my first job who, you know, knew about a lot of different kind of streams that I I could take within the cybersecurity world. Like he knew about a lot of different verticals. So what he did was at one point he asked me, so you want to stick to cybersecurity, right? And I said, no, I want to get into forensics. So he actually introduced me to somebody who worked for Australian Federal Police and was working in their cyber forensics department, actually. And I had like a conversation with both these gentlemen. And what I realized was that maybe forensics wasn't for me and that I wanted to stick to security instead in defensive side of things. And then I started training myself a lot more rigorously on the defensive side and kind of put the idea of forensics on the side a little bit, tried to use it as much as as I could in a real work environment, but decided not to take that up as my main focus. Oh, that's cool. And I could see how those skills could be totally applicable to the detection response work that you're doing these days. But I guess at this point, I'm only imagining what you do by your title. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about, you know, what does your day to day look like? Yeah, for sure. So actually, you know, when you said detection and response and how those skills could be used and everything, that also made me realize something, actually. It's that even my detection response journey is a pivot. Because what I started out in was more of what you call corporate security these days. And that was in, you know, very traditional environment. So I've had like over the last few years, ever since I started in this line of work, I've had a few pivots depending on different like profiles that sounded interesting to me. And they decided that they wanted to take me on and have me do that job. Anyways, so going back to your question about what does my day to day look like? At the moment, it's a lot of, I think a lot of reading documents, a lot of like architectural, you know, reviews and a lot of paving the way for what our future is going to look like at Twilio. The segment got acquired and we are still in the process of doing a lot of migration tasks. So figuring out what's the best strategy to migrate, you know, which components where. And our teams have also gotten integrated with uh, the 
control your team. So figuring out, you know, how we fit into the bigger picture and what are some of the things that we've built that we want to extend to Trillio Security Org? What are some of the things that Trillio Security Org has historically built that we want to utilize and we want to, you know, get rid of some of the similar components on our side that may be doing the same job and kind of just unify as much as possible. It sounds like you kind of have this whole new environment to step into and you have you have two major companies' security programs to kind of merge together and get to an outcome that's going to help you move forward in the next few years. Exactly. And not only, you know, help segment move forward or not only just help Trillium move forward, but to make sure that all of us are in alignment and then everyone's working towards the same goals that are, you know, like, Now that we are a part of such a big organization, a lot of the requirements for a lot of the projects are also huge. They've expanded in scope almost overnight, right? So whatever projects that we were doing up up until last year that segment uh, need to be rethought and somewhat redesigned, re-architected to fit into the new world and make sure that whatever we solve for, we solve for once. And, you know, we don't end up like reinventing the wheel to solve for the same problems, just within different verticals. So it sounds very uh, high level and it sounds very kind of hand wavy, but it takes such a long time. Organizational mergers are technically such demanding things in the sense that you don't go through your productivity cycles are not like as frequent. You're not shipping as frequently, but you are spending so much time to do a lot of the planning work and strategy work so that when you do start shipping, you don't have to kind of then ever take a step back and you can keep moving forward in a kind of solid, slow, but steady way. Yeah. And I mean, I hear you talking about strategy a lot, but I also saw you just recently blogged about deploying fleet and OS query at Segment. So it sounds like you're definitely getting your hands dirty as well. Yeah, I can't not get my hands dirty, honestly, because you've seen me in the OS query Slack channel. You see how excited I get about it. Like, I feel like I whenever I'm working on a very technically intense thing where I'm actually physically building things, it really gets me going, you know, then it really puts me in that Zen state, no matter how many errors I keep like encountering, it feels like, oh, yeah, that's just another little bug. I'll just like power through that. And then uh, we'll have this awesome thing going on. So I really, really love just building things. I'm not somebody who can just sit back and ask people to do this or do that. Of course, I do that as well. I try and help other engineers as much as possible. But if, you know, just helping other engineers as much as possible was my full-time job, I'd be very sad. Yeah, well, I mean, that's an amazing attitude that you have. And we can hear it just in your voice, the, the enthusiasm that comes up when you start thinking about doing these things. So it's cool that you're able to find a balance between working with the team and planning and mentoring folks and also getting to do some of this work yourself. So Prima, with that deployment of Fleet and OS Query, what were your primary motivations? It was primarily around just, you know, visibility and host monitoring, right? So the OS query project at Segment has started 
much before my time, Clippy, who is a very, again, energetic, enthusiastic contributor to the OS Query project, has been for a long time, was actually running that initiative. And then um, I think the priorities changed a bit. And then Clippy became more cloud security focused. And I basically took on that work because all of us collectively agreed that it needed to be done. So yeah, I just took it on. In the process, what we realized was that we were using SGT for orchestration purposes, which, by the way, Clippy had created. Back at Okta, I think. Is that right? Yeah, when he was in Okta. Exactly. And Clippy himself actually suggested that uh, we might be better off moving away from SGT. Because after he left Okta, it hadn't, you know, been maintained. SGT hadn't been maintained as much. And there were a lot of tech deaths, a lot of, you know, potential security risks we were encountering with it as well, because it hadn't been upgraded, a lot of the supporting libraries and so on. So to reduce or narrow down our, you know, threat surface, as well as to work with something that we know is routinely maintained, we know is more cutting edge and we know people are like actively working on. We decided to sunset SGT and bring in FleetDM instead. So there were two sides to that story, that OS query at segment story. One was the whole decommissioning the older infrastructure and putting in the new so that migrating a lot of the hosts that were enrolled into the older architecture, older infrastructure and migrating them onto the new. And then the second part was the coverage expansion to make sure that we have adequate coverage still. We don't have these dark spots in our different environments that nobody's looking at. We haven't ever had visibility into and we don't even know that they exist. So um, I was working on, I'm still actually currently working on both of those. That's not done yet. I've set up fleet and the entire logging ecosystem and everything is up and running and ready to go. But the cutovers obviously take time. So that's still, you know, in the works. And I'm still talking to all of our partner teams because these types of projects don't work in isolation. The last thing we want is, you know, bring a production system down, uh, impact productivity. So trading very carefully there and um, just going slowly but surely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a a huge priority for anyone deploying uh, security agents out there. And I wonder, what does your coordination look like with the, the operations teams? Or I don't know if you have SREs or production engineers. We have SREs and we have infrastructure teams as well. So a lot of what I've been coordinating with the SRE team has been just, you know, getting a list of all the services that we have and who are the owners of those. So that's been one aspect. The other aspect has been, you know, the entire industry is uh, seeing this shift to Kubernetes. A lot of the services that were traditionally running in EC2 instances are getting migrated. So to you know get an idea of what's going to get migrated, what do you think is a very highly likely candidate for migration and what's going to stay? Because we want to focus on what's going to stay. The services that move on to Kubernetes are covered in terms of monitoring and security coverage. They are covered under another project umbrella, which focuses primarily on monitoring in Kubernetes environment. 
that's led by another engineer at Twilio. His name is Dubani. And I work closely with him and in that we provide our inputs and, you know, any ideas or observations that I might have had from some of the research that I've been conducting on EC2 instances and also somewhat on, you know, containers as well. So we kind of work together, but he's leading that initiative. I'm focusing primarily on just the EC2 coverage. Awesome. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is I saw in your blog post that you talked about you're managing laptops, so workstations, and also servers and and also containers. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about what are the different considerations to take into account for doing detection and response on these different platforms? And, and how are you, I guess both, how are you thinking about them as kind of being similar and because we can use these same tools and the same tech stack to do that monitoring, but also what's different and what should folks be aware of? Right, for sure. So in terms of endpoint monitoring and non-containerized environment monitoring, I just call it that for simplicity purposes, because, you know, non-containerized environments uh, cover your EC2 instances, your bare metal infrastructure and kind of everything that's not containerized. So yeah, non-containerized environments and your uh, regular laptops, Macs and so on. I feel like they have a lot more of an overlap in terms of the monitoring story because we want to be looking for similar things in very similar setups and very similar ecosystems. However, the container environment story tends to be slightly different in the sense that when we talk about containers, there's monitoring at two different levels. One level of monitoring is on the host that is hosting the containers, what we call the nodes And then there's the monitoring in the pods, which are monitoring in the container itself. And um, how do you do the two of those separately? Do you use the same solution for monitoring both? Or do you use something different to monitor the underlying operating systems, but you use like another thing to monitor the containers themselves? So those are some of the things that are, you know, very different. Another thing that we've been recently talking about has been, you know, read-only file systems. They are becoming really popular in containerized environments from a security point of view. But um, very recently, I read blog posts that talked about the type of malware that are memory-based and do not uh, live in the file system anyways. So then how do you, you know, manage those? What kind of monitoring do you need to keep in place in order to look for those? And I think the container monitoring ecosystem is also very new. You know, there aren't a lot of, when it comes down to the whole traditional, your EC2 instances and your laptops and everything, you have so much data going back so many decades in the past in terms of what kind of, you know, malware have been the most prominent, what kind of attacks have been the most prominent, what kind of, you know, malicious escalations and modifications have been the most prominent. With Docker and containerized environments, like because Docker ecosystem itself is so new, we don't have data going that far back. So to pick and choose what is it that you are going to monitor and what is it that you are going to leave out, that is such an interesting question. 
I unfortunately haven't had a lot of time to just sit down and research all those things because, you know, I'm not primarily focused on that initiative right now. But God, if I were, if I had time to focus on that full time, I can only imagine just how exciting that would get, you know, all that research and just experimenting what's worth it and what's not. Yeah, totally. And I can hear your voice lighting up again when thinking about that. I've actually been reading uh, Liz Rice's book about container security. I think it's, it's available as a free download somewhere online. And I've been learning a lot about kind of what underpins containers and how do we need to rethink some of the paradigms that we're used to on bare metal or on VMs or on you know workstations, which are basically bare metal. Are VMs still a thing? Well, your EC2 instances are VMs, right? Ish, but not exactly. EC2 instances are, I would say, different in the sense that their management ecosystem is so much more mature. But then again, I'm a little biased because my exposure to VMs was at least, say, half a decade ago. I haven't seen VMs being used ever since, you know. Yeah. So I'm sure they might have also kind of, you know, leveled up in how networking is managed in them and so on and so forth. But wow, it's been so long since I even heard the words VMs and since I even actively thought about them. Yeah, and I mean, it definitely things like EC2 make it so we don't have to think about hypervisors anymore. We just deploy our applications out to computers. It doesn't really matter where exactly those computers are running. And it seems like that's kind of even more where things are headed with containers and these orchestration systems like Kubernetes. We just know we need these containers running and we tell the system to do it. It'll be interesting, I think, to see what kind of strategies we as an industry come up with over the coming years for looking at containers and to notice what kind of maybe dark corners are we neglecting? I know, right? Exactly. I'm definitely very curious and very excited at the same time. Personally speaking, one of my biggest complaints or gripes with myself actually has been that um, I never got to see the rise of, you know, computers as we know it. Like my exposure to Linux happened so much later in life, I feel, as compared to a lot of you folks who were, you know, playing with Linuxes back when you were in school or something versus, you know, me, like I only started getting to know about Linux ecosystem after coming into the workforce. So I felt like I've missed out so much, you know, if I had all that time and opportunity to be in that ecosystem and be in that space when it was still kind of up and coming and had the opportunity to like play with the cool kids in some ways, right? I feel like I, I can kind of uh, make up for some of that with the whole Kubernetes ecosystem now because I feel with it. I don't know how else to put it, but I feel with it. I feel like I can have a chance at exploring this while the world is still exploring it and, you know, not be kind of left behind. Yeah, definitely. And I can imagine that someone else is going to be in your shoes in 10 years saying, I wish I was there to watch the rise of containers and orchestration systems and I think this world will just, this tech world will just keep moving on to new technologies and we're all going to get a chance to like ride that wave of 
new stuff coming in. At least I hope so. I hope we'll all get the chance to do that. So Primo, we're getting close to the end of our time here. Maybe we can do some rapid fire questions to close it out. Yeah, let's go for it. All right. So what would be your top bit of advice for an organization working on an endpoint detection and response strategy? Okay. Endpoint detection and response. I think advice number one is focus very, very thoroughly on your centralized logging ecosystem. That's, you know, the bare bones of all monitoring, all observability, all alerting. Till you have that solved, solving for everything else is not going to mean much. That's been my experience. I mean, I'm sure people may disagree out there. So focus on centralized logging, number one. Solve for it as quickly as you can, as cheaply as you can, because it can get really expensive if you're not paying attention. And build for scale, for sure. Then advice number two would probably be around, you know, don't set up alerting just for the sake of it. Don't set up alerts to just feel like, oh, yeah, this system fires alerts. Make sure you are evaluating what's the noise to signal ratio in any alerting that you set up and do it mindfully. Don't do it just for the sake of it. Don't do it to tick a PCI box. Don't do it to keep your um, C levels happy. Do it because they are off value. Do it because, you know, they yield interesting enough information that you can then follow up on and potentially the likelihood of you finding something truly suspicious is fairly high. Because otherwise what's going to happen is you're going to set up all these alerts and feel good about it. You're going to keep feeling good about it for the next two months. And then the third month hits, you're starting to burn out. Your engineers are starting to get unhappy. Nobody likes their on-call cycles anymore. And they wish they weren't doing this. And that's not where I want any organization to be. So that. And then I think the third bit of advice would be focus on automation, focus on engineering capabilities within your org. Traditionally, security has not been so much of, you know, builder, or at least that was the case about five to six years ago. In the last few years, that's been changing quite a lot. Organizations and detection response teams with, you know, even slightest of coding capabilities are able to go so much further as compared to their counterparts, because they are able to automate so many things away with small scripts. They're able to just focus so much more on, you know, non-repetitive, non-tedious, which is where the fun is and which is where productivity is as well. So yeah, focus on the software engineering skills a little more than you previously did. I think another benefit of doing that is also that it gives you empathy, a lot more empathy for the software engineers in the organization that you're trying to protect. Speaking about strictly tech companies here, by the way, the third piece of advice is mostly for tech companies. If you're not a tech company, things might be different. And I don't know. And I'm not ashamed to say that I don't know. So take my advice, my third advice with a pinch of salt if you're a non-tech company. If you're a tech company, if you have software engineers in your DE team, you're also going to earn a lot more respect from your proper like product 
software engineering counterparts because now you know they see you as their peers and their allies and someone who's on the same boat but focused on something slightly different as opposed to this team that just keeps preaching all these things that really doesn't know how things are built or how hard it is to build things even yeah totally and this takes me back to earlier in our conversation where you were talking about how much you like to roll up your sleeves and jump into these things. It sounds to me like security teams can really help to influence and ally with the rest of the organization by showing the willingness to kind of jump in there in the trenches with folks. So I absolutely love all three of your pieces of advice for wrapping up there. And Prima, thank you so much for chatting with me today. We're so happy to have you here on this episode. Prima, where should folks look for you? Are you speaking at any conferences? You have social media that folks should look for you on? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me here. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and all of the OS Query folks and all of the fleet folks, you know, always. I just can't thank you all enough for being so responsive at all times, especially in the Fleet DM channel and just, you know, being there to chime in when people ask questions. And uh, you have such a thriving community there as well that's both super respectful and at the same time seems to have so many answers all the time. I go there all the time. I find so much support and just, you know, people who want to build things, who want to do good. That's so valuable to have. I just wanted to, you know, give a shout out to all of y'all. I'm just really thrilled to be here. People can find me on LinkedIn by my first name and my last name. So my first name is Prima. My last name is Virani. And then uh, I'm on Twitter as well. But that's a little more complicated because my Twitter handle is security nerdette, like nerd, but female. So I go by security nerdette. I have the avatar of a Powerpuff girl holding a book and a pen with like big thick glasses. That's it's my a, avatar. <laughs> it's a great avatar. And for anyone who didn't get that down, we'll put the link in the show notes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. All and right. Apologies for having such a complex Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Folks, uh, look up Prima on Twitter. She's got an amazing avatar. And as you've heard, she's got a lot of awesome things to say. So Prima, thank you again for joining us. And looking forward to seeing what else you do out in this world of cybersecurity. Likewise, I'm really looking forward to see all the milestones that Fleet reaches as well. Y'all are working so hard on it. I've seen it since 2016, 17-ish, ever since I got into the community. And uh, I only wish y'all all the best. I really hope that it, the both the product, y'all, and the community just like thrives and reaches, continues to reach all the new heights. Thank you. Very, very kind. <laughs>